Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Rob Denning. Today, I am speaking with Dr. Christopher Tomlins about his new book, In the Matter of Nat Turner, A Speculative History, which was just published in 2020 by Princeton University Press. Professor Tomlins, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, and before we get into the book, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, Well, I teach at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, I teach in the law school. It happens that I'm not a lawyer by training. I'm a historian. I have a PhD from Johns Hopkins University some, well, quite a long time ago. Um, and uh, after I left Johns Hopkins, I was looking for a job. This is right at the end of the 1970s, uh, when history was in one of its many uh, job crisis modes. So I ended up going to a legal studies department uh, at La Trobe University in Melbourne, in Australia, uh, where I stayed for 13 years. And the beauty of that job was that it got me into legal studies um, uh, and away from history. I continued to be a historian. In fact, I became a legal historian as a result of that move. Um, but I was not uh, employed as um, an academic historian as such in a history department. And that pretty much dictated the rest of my sort of career. Um, I, uh, after La Trobe, I returned to the U.S. to uh, join a research foundation in Chicago, um, where I stayed for about 17 years. And then I moved to California to join a new law school that was created at UC Irvine. Um, and then five years later, moved on to uh, Berkeley, uh, where there is a well-known, um, unique PhD program inside the law school called Jurisprudence and Social Policy. Um, and that is uh, the main reason I came to Berkeley, to teach in that program. So that's pretty much how I got from sort of A to B. Okay, that's great. And your book is on the Nat Turner Rebellion, as it's kind of popularly termed. Uh, before we get into the book itself, can you provide, can you give us a reminder of what exactly happened during that rebellion? Who, who was Nat Turner and what was, what was this event? Nat Turner was a uh, slave. Um, he was born in uh, 1800 uh, or in the early 19th century. Um, so he was 30 years old in 1831 when the rebellion occurred. And the book is actually less about the rebellion than it's about an attempt to recover Turner himself. But what happened uh, as a result of his, um, his leadership, his actions, uh, was that a very small group at first of uh, slaves um, uh, came to a decision to launch an attack upon white households in the small village, really hamlet, of Cross Keys uh, in Southampton County, Virginia. 
Um, so they moved uh, from household to household uh, over a period of 12 hours, uh, recruiting um, new slaves to join the, uh, the group and uh, killing the white inhabitants as they moved. Um, mostly the inhabitants were women and children. Um, and uh, by the end of the first afternoon, uh, they started very early uh, in the morning, in the early hours of the morning, and over a period of about 12 hours, uh, killed uh, 55 whites um, without losing any of their own number. And then um, were challenged and met by groups of uh, local inhabitants, white militia. Um, they retreated um, back toward Cross Keys, the hamlet where everything had begun, uh, but then uh, decided to camp out on a plantation uh, overnight and make a, another attempt. They were trying to reach the town of Jerusalem, which is the county seat of Southampton County. And after that night, they uh, attempted to uh, move and to uh, recruit some more uh, supporters. Um, they were uh, repulsed again by, uh, by whites and the rebellion at that point essentially collapsed. Everybody fled back toward uh, Cross Keys or to other parts of the area of uh, Southampton County where all of this had occurred. And uh, the group dispersed sort of chaotically. Great, thank you for that. And we'll go into a little bit more detail, I think, as we get through the book here. Before we get to the, the content of the book, how did you come to write this? How, what, what got you interested in this story? Well, I had been curious about Matt Turner for many years. I had come across Turner through uh, reading um, William Styron's um, book, uh, The Confessions of Matt Turner. Uh, I had also read the um, pamphlet, uh, a famous pamphlet, uh, by Thomas Ruffin Gray, uh, from which Stein basically stole his title. Um, I had come across traces of the Turner Rebellion in other work that I had been doing, in uh, research that I had been doing, uh, which had touched upon uh, parts of Virginia. And so... The kind of rebellion is sort of like a, a rock thrown into a pond, and it's you know, there's a splash and then ripples, and the ripples go everywhere. Um, and so, in working on some research on Virginia at that time, uh, I had come across uh, the effects of the rebellion, um, but I had never followed it up. This curiosity, this sort of um, Acquaintance remained completely latent until 10 years ago. I had finished another book, which was a kind of big, sprawling, uh, uh, book about nearly half a millennium of 
Anglo-American history. And I decided that I wanted to write something, I wanted to try to write something more precise, more focused. Um, and I thought, well, it's time to satisfy that curiosity about Matt Turner. So that's, that's what took me there. Yeah, and this is an interesting book in that you're not framing it as a full-on biography of Turner. The, the book title itself is In the Matter of Nat Turner rather than, I think you point this out at one point in the book, you didn't title it just as Nat Turner Life or something like that. You titled it as In the Matter of Nat Turner, A Speculative History. What was your thinking behind that title? Well, uh, I couldn't pretend to write some things that were, could be classified as a biography because there simply isn't enough material to be able to write a biography as such. The uh, subject of the book really is sort of Matt Turner, the historical phenomenon, um, just as much as it is Matt Turner himself. Um, and I, uh, that's the reason I called it In the Matter of Matt Turner, because it's, it's, it is about the phenomenon of Matt Turner as well as about the person. I call it a speculative history because I speculate, uh, or rather I um, attempt to build a, an interpretation of Turner and of the events of his rebellion on the basis of a very close reading of really what are no more than little fragments or shards of evidence. Um, so it's speculative not in the sense that I'm making it up. Uh, it's speculative in the sense that I'm trying to provide an intelligent and I hope um, reasonably convincing um, account of Turner uh, by reading uh, what there is to read in terms of primary evidence um, very, very closely and then interpreting it very, very imaginatively, I hope. Yeah, and I believe that you succeeded that. I mean, that is kind of an ongoing thread of the book is that there is very little remaining information about Turner. And so you focus, you, you like, as you say, you do some close readings on some very selected sources. Um, and that, that makes a lot of sense in this, in this situation. You start off the book by talking about the uh, William Styron Confessions of Nat Turner that was published in 1967, as you mentioned a few minutes ago. Why did you decide to start there rather than going back to the very beginning, right at the beginning of the book? Uh, by starting with Styron, I'm starting with the best known um, attempt to create a uh, an image, a picture of Turner as a person. Um, I also was fascinated as I read into Styron and the debates uh, that his book caused uh, by Styron's own inability really to articulate what he was trying to do in the book. Um, he calls the book a meditation on history. 
um, but he is never able to explain what he means by that. Indeed, he acknowledges himself that he is unable to explain what he means by that. He says, I, I never really knew what I meant by that. Um, my book is also a meditation on history. Um, and I think that as a historian with a, uh, a developed philosophy of history, I hope that I'm more successful in, in articulating what it means to engage in historical research and to engage in the uh, interpretation of a historical figure um, like Turner. So I begin with Styron because Styron is the... I think for many people still is the person one thinks of as the person who attempted to write about Turner, the person. Um, and he failed. Uh, not in writing a, an interesting novel, but he failed in that larger attempt to explain what it meant to write about history as such. And so my goal was to use him as a kind of a stalking horse, uh, to uh, engage in a conversation about William Styron as an introduction to a further attempt, uh, my own attempt to engage with not trying to person. One of the things, other things that interested me about your discussion of Styron was that it provided you an interesting way to introduce the historiographical kind of debate that's been happening about Nat Turner, because you were able to kind of identify that Styron had his defenders among the historians, but he also had people who rejected his Styron's interpretation among historians too. And so it kind of provided an interesting entryway into the long-running historiographical debate, especially in the time of the civil rights movement, that is of interest to us today, even from a historiographical perspective. Absolutely. Um, Styron uh, was um, writing as a white author, obviously, and uh, took it upon himself to write in the first person. Um, so he assumed himself into the character of Matt Turner in order to write from Turner's perspective. That was his, uh, his authorial conceit. Um, that caused no end of uh, controversy uh, because, as many uh, African-American critics said, there was there's no basis upon which, there's no experiential basis for a white author to be able to understand um, an African-American slave. Um, that also had a major impact upon, you know, how Styron actually imagines the person. He's very selective 
in his imagination of Turner, he says, um, I didn't want to write about uh, a religious fanatic. Uh, I find the person of Matt Turner that I meet in the sources that I consult, consulted um, almost a sort of repulsive, uh, psychopathic figure. Um, and so I have decided, he tells his audience, uh, I, I decided to make up my own Turner with his own motivations. I gave him his motivations, he says at one point. Uh, I gave him more of his worries, his fears, his anxieties, uh, which is a, a, a kind of somewhat arrogant statement for anybody to make about a, uh, uh, a historical personage. Uh, that instead of trying to work out as best one can the motivations, the worries, the anxieties that the personality itself, the person manifests, you just ignore all of those and make up uh, a new set that accord better with your own sense of the kind of character you want to create. So all of this caused uh, considerable controversy. Um, Ten uh, black intellectuals um, published their own uh, group critique of um, Styron's Confessions of Matt Turner, um, and uh, Styron, in turn, was then defended uh, with great um, energy by uh, any number of white historians, Eugene Genovese, uh, for one, who uh, climbed into this fight with great gusto, and uh, who criticized uh, the African-American response to Siron, um, as did others, um, perhaps a bit less, um, uh, vociferously, uh, C. Van Woodward, uh, for, for another, as a white historian, basically endorsed Styron, uh, as a historian. Uh, he says he gets the man right, he gets the period right. Um, so That is part of the, you know, part of the controversy that you refer to, the historiographic controversy, is the uh, split between uh, African American critics and white historians uh, over the validity of the portrayal that uh, Styron offers. Um, of course, another historiographical controversy that I guess is ongoing, uh, is to what extent can one, uh, uh, justify or identify with someone who after all leads a rebellion that results in the deaths of not only 55 whites, but also, uh, a, an equivalent number of, um, of slaves. Yeah. And I, th so I think that book does a, Discussing that book provides you with a really good introduction to the historiography as you've described it. And I think that provided a really effective way to kind of introduce uh, the reader to Nat Turner and the um, rebellion 
And one, as I mentioned, one of the kind of running threads of the book is the lack of documentary evidence about the event itself. And so once after you've d- your discussion of William Styron's Confessions of Nat Turner, you then jump back to the original Confessions of Nat Turner. It was published by uh, Thomas Gray back in 1831. And that earlier document really forms the basis of the rest of your of your your book you mentioned that that book that that uh the original confessions by gray is only 24 pages long i believe it is and so it requires a lot of deep reading to really be able to um extrapolate to figure out what happened so uh, tell us about that document what can we learn from it and what do you think we should learn from it gray's pamphlet is and remains invaluable because it is the result of, um, at least in part, the result of a conversation or a series of conversations that Gray has with Nat Turner uh, after he is captured and uh, while he is in jail awaiting uh, trial. Uh, Gray himself is someone who had taken a great interest in the rebellion itself as an event. Um, he had all, he had written about it uh, before he wrote the pamphlet. He had written uh, letters to uh, Virginia newspapers about the rebellion. Uh, he had actually participated uh, in the some of the action as a member of one of the first groups of uh, whites to confront the rebels uh, on the afternoon of um, Monday, the uh, uh, 21st of August. Um, the pamphlet itself is constructed in a very... It's a very com. I, I think it's quite a complex document. Uh, it appears like, as you said, it's a 24-page pamphlet. It, it appears really quite a simple document uh, uh, with um, a preface written by Gray, then a uh, a long section that purports to be the uh, Turner speaking. Um, to Gray um, uh, in his description of himself, um, his description of the events of the rebellion, um, a further commentary by Gray that appears at the conclusion of that uh, section that is attributed to Turner, uh, and then a, a short report of the trial and uh, sentencing that occurred um, on uh, Saturday, 5th of October, uh, Turner's trial date. Um, it, it has always seemed to me that uh, his, uh, the people who have used the pamphlet have not read it uh, with as much sort of close attention as perhaps it deserves. Um, that is truer of historians who have basically used it as an empirical account of the rebellion than of literary scholars who are much more interested in it 
uh, in its construction as a document. And that gives them a greater, I think, insight into the pamphlet as a text. Um, and in any case, I decided to try to approach the pamphlet by uh, analyzing its structure as well as its substance. Um, I was following the techniques suggested by a by structuralist literary theory in doing that. Um, and this really requires that one pay attention to all of the component elements of a text um, to see how the text is being put together to, uh, to understand the text uh, not simply as words on a page uh, that one reads as a narrative of something that has occurred, but as a document that has been constructed for a purpose. Um, once one looks at the pamphlet in that way, its complexity begins to uh, become much more uh, apparent. Uh, uh, for example, uh, it begins with a series of certifications that attest to its uh, validity, its, uh, its truth, um, its authenticity. It uh, then proceeds to uh, that preface written by Gray, which is really a set of instructions as to how readers should encounter the pamphlet. Um, it then proceeds to the text of the conversation with Turner, but it does so uh, only through a set of setting up a, a series of sort of conditions which frame that conversation, um, which appear almost uh, as if it, they are a cage uh, containing uh, a dangerous, unruly text. Um, that has to be controlled by the author. Um, these kinds of, this kind of analysis, uh, leads me to, uh, trust that the text itself, the text of the conversation between Gray and Turner, uh, is a, relatively reliable account, um, not so much of the events of the rebellion itself, although they are told from Turner's perspective, but uh, a reliable um, account of an autobiographical account of, of Turner himself. Um, there's lots of material in the first half of the pamphlet that is completely new to grade. He knows about the rebellion. He knows about what happened during the rebellion. He may well know more about what happened during the rebellion than Turner himself. Um, but he doesn't know anything about Turner the person. And he learns that uh, during the first part of the conversation. Um, and it's that part, uh, in fact, that I find most interesting in the pamphlet. Uh, it's that part that I find most informative because that is the part that is essentially the most autobiographical. 
And that first section uh, in your reading and in the way you describe it in the book, that provides you kind of a launching point to start talking about uh, Nat Turner's conception of religion and his place in religion. So can you tell us a little bit about the religious background to that text and Turner's view of of his own religion and his the role that he's playing within that? Yeah, it's it's uh, no great discovery of mine that that Turner has a religious mentality. Uh, that has always been remarked upon. Um, what I find fascinating about the religious mentality that is on display in the pamphlet, however, is that it is. Uh, in my view, far more uh, sophisticated, far more uh, informed, uh, far more coherent than uh, simply saying, well, uh, Turner clearly takes religion seriously, uh, would suggest. Um, by that I mean... When historians look at Turner's religiosity, when they look at the pamphlet as um, exemplifying Turner's religiosity, uh, they tend to say, well, look, here is a, here is a religious uh, mind uh, that tells a story and kind of sprinkles it with biblical citations, biblical references. Um, and there isn't really very much of an attempt made to understand what that structure of citation actually means. Um, instead, it's as if, well, you know, anybody who is religious is going to sprinkle biblical citations into what they they say. Um, what I wanted to do was to understand as closely as possible what that religious mentality actually meant. Um, and so I took the structure of citation uh, very seriously um, and I was able, at least to my own satisfaction, to, to trace a very coherent uh, religious ideology. Um, an evangelical Christian ideology um, that uh, drew uh, to a very large extent on the Gospel of St. Luke, and on the Book of Revelation um, in creating an account of Turner himself as ultimately um, uh, the Redeemer return, the second coming of Christ. Um, he does this um, in a in a way that is not at all indiscriminate. Uh, he is not pulling uh, citations from different parts of the Bible kind of indiscriminately. 
he is uh, creating uh, a uh, narrative of himself as a uh, person whose faith matures over a period of time, who uh, gains a deeper and deeper understanding of his own spirituality and of his own significance over time. Significance, that is, as a religious figure himself. And ultimately identifies himself uh, as uh, Christ's return. Um, it's, it's, this is part, this is, uh, really part of the, what I mean by a speculative history. I can't prove it. I can point to the, uh, structure of citation as evidence that this is a way of understanding the religious persona uh, of Nat Turner uh, in a coherent uh, way, uh, in quite a compelling way. Um, uh, but, you know, as I said, it's, it's, it is a speculation, but it is a speculation grounded in the evidence that is available to me. Yeah, that makes sense. And so getting back to the rebellion itself, you say in the book that the rebe the rebellion was not a straightforward murder spree, or it wasn't necessarily a straightforward revenge against slavery type of uh, situation. So if it wasn't uh, a murder spree, or if it wasn't strictly just um, mindless vengeance, what was this rebellion? The rebellion is not one thing. Um, I think the first, the first comment I want to offer is um, by identifying it as a slave rebellion, we, we kind of categorize an event, an event that is mysterious and sort of all of a sudden we solved it because we've categorized it in a particular way. Um, the rebellion is a number of different things in my view. Um, in part it is uh, the uh, fulfillment in Turner's mind of his uh, Role as the redeemer returned. Um, in the minds of others involved, I think it is more conventionally a a form of uh, revenge against, taken against particular slaveholding families. There are two very fine now. I mean, one, one of the things I should say is that the, the sort of the historiography, the, the history uh, that has been written about the Turner Rebellion over the years, have often struck me as sort of somewhat disappointing um, compared, say, with a work on other slave rebellions or slave conspiracies, like Ben uh, uh, Macbeth's. Uh, uh, Purported conspiracy or 
of the uh, or Gabriel's Rebellion. Um, but recently, two very fine social histories have been uh, written, published about the the, uh, the Perna Rebellion, which um, actually made my task you know, rather easier. Um, because it meant that there was a lot of research that I might otherwise have had to do that I didn't have to do because it had been done. But I think it's important, nevertheless, to say, you know, Matt Turner does not kind of sit down with a bunch of Confederates and say, we're going, let's have a slave rebellion. Um, they have different motivations, they have different ideas as to what the, what they are doing. Um, as the as the event develops, as people join it, those others who join in have their own motivations for joining in, or they in many cases they join reluctantly. In some cases they are coerced. Uh, in other cases they will join for a short period and then sort of quietly disappear from the group. Um, there are a number of just different reasons for this event to have occurred. Okay. <laughs> and one, one of the things, or one of the statements that you make in the book that I thought was really interesting is towards, when we get towards the second half of the book, you mentioned that the rebellion is what you called an instance of counter-sovereignty. What did you mean by that? Uh, by counter-sovereignty, I'm... The suggestion is that uh, what, the re what the rebellion does represent, however one analyzes the different motivations of those who are engaged in it, it represents a fundamental challenge to an existing order of authority. Uh, uh, that is, of course, the white authority, white social authority, cultural authority, political authority uh, within uh, the state of Virginia and indeed beyond it. But however one, ex however one, whatever one concludes about the the, the motivations that bring this event um, uh, into being, uh, it is a challenge. Um, and it's a challenge to a regime of authority. Um, the major... Um, whose reason for being is to control slaves. Um, so that a group of slaves is uncontrolled, even for a relatively short period of time, uh, makes it, this is what I mean by, by, by calling it an instance of, of counter-sovereignty. Um, and when we look at the response to the rebellion, um, the response is one to reassert that sovereignty, 
that authority as quickly as possible. So whether it is an assertion, whether the, the, the counter-sovereignty is the counter-sovereignty of Tanner's sense of himself as uh, an ultimate religious figure, as, as Christ, uh, or whether it is the counter-sovereignty of his comrades who are um, uh, expressing their newfound uh, consciousness of themselves as self-acting uh, people. Um, the objective of authority is to reassert itself. Uh, as quickly as possible, uh, as you know, with whatever form of coercion is required to reassert that authority. Your discussion of counter sovereignty led into what I believe is the longest chapter of the book, um, which I believe is the last chapter before the epilogue. And in that chapter, you talk about how that sovereignty reasserted itself, but it wasn't a absolute or it was, it was fast, but you pointed out in the book that there was that the Turner rebellion kind of reopened or accelerated a debate among Southerners and Virginians about the morality of slavery, because some people made the argument that see that these uprisings, this is why slavery is bad. And so maybe we should outlaw it. And there were others who, solidified kind of their defense of slavery and ultimately we we know that the supporters of slavery won the debate but i thought it was really interesting how that played out is that there actually was a bit of a debate after the in the wake of the turner rebellion about the future of slavery in virginia and so as um at one point you said that uh you called virginians um vulnerable, fragile, and guilty sovereigns. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that debate played out, even if it was a relatively quick debate. Sure. Um, Virginia, you know, politically, politically, socially, Virginia um, in the 1820s, um, in the period immediately prior to the, uh, the Turner uh, Rebellion, uh, Virginia is uh, really, uh, quite a divided state. Um, there is old Tidewater, Virginia. There is the, uh, Piedmont, uh, there's Piedmont, Virginia, into which, uh, Tidewater slaveholders have been, uh, expanding for the last hundred years. Um, but, in the West, what is now the separate state of West Virginia, but then was simply the western part of the single state of Virginia, uh, you have um, um, migration in to that area and a, a very different kind of um, society uh, being created. Uh, a society of um, pastoral farming and of subsistence farming, 
uh, that is mostly free of slaveholding. There are a few small pockets of uh, slaveholding in Western Virginia, but the vast majority of Western Virginia is free of, of slavery. Um, the state politically is controlled largely by the East, by Old Virginia, by Tidewater and Piedmont, Virginia. Um, and increasingly, the two sections of Virginia are at odds with each other uh, because their economies are very different. They have different uh, needs and uh, demands to make of state government. Um, and increasingly, the debate between the two sections focuses upon the um, focuses upon slavery itself. Uh, slavery is the is, slavery is what Eastern Virginia desires to defend. Its desire to defend its slaveholding um, leaves Easterners anxious to maintain their political ascendancy within the state. Uh, that political ascendancy within the state is what Westerners uh, increasingly concentrate upon as uh, an obstacle to uh, the state meeting their own uh, very different needs and demands. So gradually the state has become focused on the question of slavery over time. Uh, this is, you know, the white state has become focused on this question of slavery over time um, to the point where uh, a couple of years prior to the rebellion uh, constitutional convention uh, is created to debate the whole question of uh, suffrage and uh, political representation, uh, the redistribution of political power within the state, um, that redistributive effort uh, essentially uh, confirms uh, the East once again as politically ascendant so it doesn't resolve the uh, growing political conflict between the sections. And after the rebellion, the question reemerges, and it reemerges uh, with much more vigor uh, and much more hostility between those who, those in the East who wish to maintain their defense of slaveholding and those in the West who now identify the fact of slaveholding as the chief obstacle uh, to their own um, to their own development. Um, this isn't really a debate over the morality of slaveholding as such. Uh, Western anti-slavery opinion. Uh, is not uh, uh, in any sense uh, sort of racially progressive. Um, they want slaves, slavery banned from the state, which but they also want to expel. They want to expel all the slaves too. So um, the question that 
this debate occurs around is whether the institution of slavery shall be maintained within Virginia um, or not. Yes, that's an important point to remember is that this was not abolitionism or a civil rights movement <laughs> type moment. This was simply a economic de de debate over uh, the usefulness of slavery more than anything else. Now, in your epilogue, uh, you establish what you're calling a constellation uh, between uh, Thomas Gray's Confessions of Nat Turner, Max Weber's Lecture on Science as a Vocation from 1917, and Walter Benjamin's essay on Capitalism as Religion from 1921. Can you tell us a bit more about that constellation? How did all of these sources work together to help you better understand the uh, Nat Turner um, Rebellion? Uh, well, I should say, first of all, that the book itself, I conceive of the book as a Benjaminian book. Uh, I'm, uh, my own sense of history, uh, my own philosophy of history is a Benjaminian philosophy of history, uh, which is to say that, you know, the, the historical event is constructed in, in, in the now when we engage with it. Um, we're not trying to recover something that has occurred, although indeed that something has occurred, but rather what we're examining is at least as much our own interest in that event. Why are we interested in that event at this, at this particular moment when we when we come to recognize its appeal or its significance to ourselves at the moment that we engage with it. And so what I'm trying to do in uh, uh, creating that constellation um, in the epilogue is to say, uh, we as observers, not simply as historians who are uh, undertaking the, the research that uh, renders history available to us, but also as readers engaging with this particular moment, we are actively creating uh, rather than sort of passively receiving. And what we're creating is our own consciousness of meaning, the meaning of the event, but also the meaning that it has for us in the moment in which we consider it. Uh, so the idea of a constellation is, uh, well, I mean, if, if you think of it uh, sort of astrologically or you think of it uh, astronomically, um, Constellations of stars in the sky do not exist as such. Um, we can look at the sky and we can see, you know, the Great Bear, or we can see Orion, uh, and these are patterns of pinpoints of light that uh, humanity has, on which humanity has imposed uh, figural meaning. But those 
stars do not have any relationship to each other in that form. We create those patterns by through our own observation. Uh, and we impose those figural representations on the patterns that we see. In the same way, we as observers are the creators of the patterns that we see in the material that we uh, interact with. Um, so what I'm pointing out in, in the book, uh, or in the epilogue, is the importance of sort of understanding that one, that the reader, the author, is taking, in taking a position, in offering an interpretation, in offering a meaning, uh, we are, do, we are actively engaged in, uh, the process of creating history rather than sort of passively receiving it. Um, and the equivalent to that astro, the, that astronomical pattern is the series of texts that we bring into a relationship with each other in order to try to understand the event or the occurrence in which we are interested. I turned uh, to Weber and to Benjamin as uh, texts that could be brought into conjunction with Gray's text, and that I, as the creator, the observer, can use to interpret Gray's text. Uh, Weber is significant because that extraordinary essay Sciences of Vocation is the source of one of Weber's greatest and most fascinating pronouncements about modernity, um, which is what he calls its disenchantment. That is, the world is disenchanted. Uh, and by that he means um, that we, we have ceased over time to rely upon um, a sense of mystery or myth or magic to understand the world about us. That instead, instead, we become aware of our capacity to know empirically the world. And that is, in, in, in developing that knowledge, we disenchant the world. We render it less mysterious. And I find that significant in this particular instance because, in my view, that is precisely what Gray is doing in his pamphlet. He is engaged in a process of explanation that, of rational explanation that produces something that all his neighbors and his audience in that pamphlet can recognize. He produces a slave rebellion. Of course, it's something that um, 
Southerners have been anxious about or are anxious about, but nevertheless, it's something that they can recognize. It's something that uh, has a certain familiarity to them. And one can think of the pamphlet as a kind of relentless exercise in the production of something that is recognizable, the slave rebellion, that is devoid of mystery. That's why, in my own analysis of the pamphlet, I counterpose the two parts, the part in which Turner is speaking autobiographically about himself, about which Gray, first of all, doesn't he doesn't know any of that stuff before, and I believe he's not particularly interested in that stuff. What he's interested in is figuring out, you know, exactly what happened when, uh, creating a pattern for himself and for his readers, uh, something that they can recognize. So that's the reason that I appeal to Weber um, as one point in the constellation that I'm creating. Uh, I use Benjamin's capitalism as religion because it is it, it is a it is itself just a fragment. Uh, it's it's a, a less than a thousand words of of, of almost jotting. Uh, uh, in which Benjamin is exploring what what is religion and what is capitalism. Um, and how are they interrelated? Uh, and because um, part of the explanation of uh, Southern um, response to the rebellion that I uh, developed in that long, final, substantive chapter that you referred to, the sixth chapter of the book, which is about the political conflict between the two sections of Virginia, but it's also about how that conflict is resolved. Um, and it is resolved in, a, in the manner of uh, leaving the question of slavery to the market, leaving the question of Virginia's own economy not to, and slavery as an institution within that economy, not to political determination, but simply to uh, the, um, uh, the, uh, the necessary development of political economy. And so what one sees in the rebellion, what I see in the rebellion, uh, the, the rebellion is, is not a, it's not a sort of an, uh, uh, an overtly kind of anti-capitalist, uh, movement. That would be stupid, um, to, to, to make that claim. Um, but what one sees in the aftermath of the rebellion is the clarification of what kind of economy Virginia has and how that economy should be left to operate for itself. Uh, rather than attempting to mess with it with attempts at sort of 
political abolition of an economic institution, the institution of slavery. And someone has, you know, the, this extraordinary juxtaposition between, on the one hand, the, the religious figure of Turner as the, uh, as I've described him, conceiving of himself as the redeemer returned, um, and on the other, the, the kind of the profane response to the event in which that is, in which Turner makes that sense of himself plain, the profane response is to say, well, political economy will cure all our ills. Um, political economy is the way in which we uh, address the question of uh, slavery within the state of Virginia. Uh, so the, the component elements of the, the epilogue, the constellation that I am kind of trying to assemble in the epilogue as my way of explaining or interpreting what Nat Turner and his rebellion how we can think about it, uh, all of the elements of the constellation that I am assembling are intended to show how, by juxtaposing these different texts, one can, one can arrive at um, an intelligent appraisal of the, what has of this person, Turner, and of his rebellion, and of an appraisal of the matter of Matt Turner. Great, and I think that's a good place to um, end the discussion of the book. Uh, I've taken up a lot of your time here, but what is next for you now that you're done with this project? Yeah, I've, I've, I've begun to think about that. I... I uh, I'm going to do something completely different again, although I say it's completely different, but in a way it's a return to interests that I had many years ago. Um, uh, the, the first book I ever wrote uh, was called The State and the Unions, and it was um, a study of um, the history of labor relations law and of the development of uh, state-favored collective bargaining during the New Deal. And um, for anybody who has any interest in labor law or in the labor movement in this country, uh, will anybody who has those interests will know that um, the organized labor movement in, in the United States currently is about as weak as it's ever been at any point in the last 150 years. Um, and much of the, so much of my interest currently lies in uh, returning to the question of the relationship between the structure of labor relations law uh, as it exists in the United States 
and the current state of the labor movement as it exists in the United States. So it's something completely different than writing about Matt Turner and uh, his rebellion. Um, I can't really say that uh, I can think of, of some particular reason why I chose to to make this 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 move, uh, except that, like Turner, it's something that really interests me, um, and it's something that I know something about, and hopefully, uh, something that I can um, I can contribute to. Yeah, and well, whatever your reason for it, I'm I look forward to seeing what you do next. So thank you for taking the time to talk to me about uh, Nat Turner today, Dr. Tomlin. Thank you very much indeed. I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed the opportunity. I've been talking to Christopher Tomlins about his new book, In the Matter of Nat Turner, A Speculative History. You've been listening to New Books in History on the New Books Network.